Good evening, good evening. Welcome to the Players Lounge presented today by ProTent International. Today is Tuesday, February 11th. I'm your host, Alex Ramirez. Alongside with me today, we have the CEO of MLJ Group, Sandy Middleman. Sandy, thank you for being with us tonight. Yeah, it's great to be back as always, Alex. Looking forward to uh, looking forward to the show. Absolutely. I want to remind everybody that uh, if you want to reach us, when you want to reach us, ask questions, dial us in at 347-637-1197. Again, area code 347-637-1197. You can also reach us on Twitter at Pro10 Radio and Facebook at Pro10 Radio. So pretty easy to remember. Sandy, we've got a great show tonight lined up once again. Um, we've been uh, talking a lot about, uh, you know, we're going to talk about Fed Cup later on in the show today. And we're going to get started here in a few minutes with none other than, than Taylor Dent. Uh, do you remember watching watching Taylor in uh, those some of those epic matches back in the day? I do. Um, I remember Taylor standing out for a couple of reasons. Number one is he was the, one of the guys out there that was bringing the old school serve and volley and nonstop attack. Um, so that was uh, that was great to see. It. So you always look forward to uh, seeing his matches and. Taylor was one of the guys out there I felt like that had the ability to impact the big, you know, the big guns out there in the right circumstances just because of his attacking style. Yes. Well, let me tell the fans a little bit about Taylor for those all those young kids listening in today that that, that like the show and tell you a little bit about him. Taylor actually, uh, his dad, his dad uh, was a finalist at the Australian Open in 1974. His mom reached the U.S. Open uh, doubles final in 1977, so it comes from a tennis family. Uh, he has four career titles. He reached a high uh, singles ranking, ATP Tour singles ranking, of number 21 in uh, 2005. He played all the Grand Slams, of course, um, and uh, was a, quarter, a semifinalist at the uh, Olympic Games. So at this time, let's uh, welcome on the show Taylor Dent. Taylor, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. It's, it's so great. And I know that you're just now getting off the court, and you put in a full day on the court. How was, uh, how was the day today in, uh, in sunny California? Oh, it was good. Well, the weather's mostly always beautiful here, and uh, the kids at the academy are working hard today. You know, it's nice. We were playing some games for some running and uh, they were getting fired up and getting into it. And, you know, it's nice to see them working on the right stuff, nice to see them improving and uh, making progress. That is awesome. That is awesome. So let me lay out the way we're going we're gonna to do the show today. Uh, Taylor, we're going to break it up into three parts, and we're going to talk a little bit about the four uh, you were professional, kind of growing up, what you did and went through. Uh, during your professional career, we'll hit a little bit on that, and then we're going to touch a little bit on on after your career, how your academy is doing and what you're doing uh, these days um, after the tour. So I'll, I'll get us started with, uh, first question is, uh, what were the things that in your youth that made you fall in love with the sport? Obviously your mom and dad would play tennis, but was that enough to really make you love it? Actually, it wasn't enough. You know, I didn't start playing tennis or taking tennis seriously until I was about 10 years old. I was, you know, I was more into video games and just hanging out and causing problems. Um, the thing that actually made me fall in love with tennis, my dad was coaching Michael Chang um, when I was about 10 years old, and we had a court in our backyard, and you know, every day after school, I'd get to see Michael Chang, who was then one of the you know, toughest players on tour, come out and train and practice, and 
you know, for some kid that's normally at the club courts watching, you know, three, five, four, oh, tennis, I, I saw that and I'm like, wow, this is real stuff. This is tennis. This looks awesome. So I, I, yeah. I, I kind of credit my, my real head, head first plunge into tennis to Michael Chang. Wow. Very good. Sandy, you got a question? Yeah, from tell us, yeah um, let's jump in real quick. That's interesting because that would have—I uh, wouldn't have expected that answer. Um, obviously, not knowing that your father at one time was working with Michael, and everybody kind of remembers uh, Michael for his relentless, uh, you know, relentless energy out there. Um, we were wondering uh, when you were growing up. With both uh, with both parents being former world class players, did that influence you in your tennis in any way? Absolutely. Once I started playing, I mean, I, I kind of you know I, I was able to cheat more or less. You know, I understood <laughs> from my parents how a professional player is supposed to go about their business, how they're supposed to go about their daily routine, and uh, and it really just made my improvement, made my progress happen so quickly. So once I decided to start, once the decision was mine, my parents really kind of took me and said, look, this is how it has to happen if you want to be good. And that's why I, you know, I made pretty quick progress. Awesome. You know, with that said, uh, the, kind of the next question is, uh, was, so was your path of development predetermined? Were you uh, wanting to turn pro as soon as you kind of fell in love with the sport? Or did it just come about that, hey, I'm getting good enough that I think I'm gonna I'm gonna make the jump. Uh, you know, I, I'm pretty tunnel vision, and I had you know, I, I really did have kind of that professional tennis in mind, and and also just because it felt attainable to me. You know, a, a lot of kids growing up don't really get to hang around and be near former professional or current professional tennis players, and really that was my my childhood as I was growing up. So for me, it felt extremely attainable and extremely reasonable to be a professional player. So once I started, that was the goal. That was the goal. Very good. It's very good. Um, you know, in in keeping the the topic uh, a little bit to the parent, your parents uh, influencing your development. Um, did both of your either or both of your parents take on like your coaching duties, or did you guys? Did they hire somebody outside to take on your development? And then if there was another coach, what was the dynamic between that coach and then your parents? How was there an influence with them? Um, up until I was about 17, 18 years old, my father was my one and only coach. You know, he taught me the, you know, the, the technique, the fundamentals of the game, pretty much everything. And then, you know, like any other father-son relationship, you, know, you start to hit 17, 18 years old. And, uh, you know, you, you start to want to spread your own wings a little bit. So that's when we butted sure. heads. And uh, the first coach I went with was actually Elliot Telcher, you know, former oh. great uh, player for the U.S. So um, and I was with Elliot for a couple of years, and, and we all got along pretty well. We got along great. You know, Dad and him were on the same page. And I think just as a stubborn 18-year-old kid, just hearing it from uh, a different person, you know, just kind of made a difference. It's not like Elliot was saying anything different than my father was saying. It's just, you know, teenagers are going to be teenagers, me included. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, sure. It's funny to hear how, you know, all these, all these players go through the same stuff because I have players the same way. And, and if it comes from me, eat healthy, they're like, okay, coach, but if it comes from their parents, they don't really take it too seriously. <laughs> Um, so it's nice how that goes across the board. Um, 
so, you know, in your junior tournaments, are there any titles that stick out in your mind as a special memory in your junior career? Um, I'd have to say, gosh, the I two kind of stick out in my mind. I, 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 when I was younger, I started, you know, making improvements pretty quick. But the first time I realized, okay, hey, maybe I am one of the better kids in the nation was when I won uh, the Nationals in San Antonio in the 14. I, uh, I played pretty well. I only dropped a couple of sets, and I beat a very good, you know, guy in the final, Scott Lipsky. And then the, the next year, in, in the 16s, I won Kalamazoo when I was 15. So those, those two tournaments kind of made me feel like, okay, I'm, I'm really making some good headway, and uh, I might be ready for, you know, some, some big-time tennis in the future. Right. Um, you know, Taylor, listening to everything you've been, obviously you've been talking about, um, this question may or may not uh, sound foolish to you, but it, was there any particular age that you yourself, you know, kind of like doing one of those things where you woke up one day and just said, you know, I want to be a pro. I mean, was it like right away or was, did it take a little time and then like after you had a little bit of results and progress, you thought, oh, I'm pretty, you know, I'm pretty good. Maybe I can do this or when was that? Well, for, I'm pretty extreme. My personality is pretty extreme and it, it's still unfortunately that way today. So when I decided to start hitting tennis balls when I was, you know, 10 years old, it was, let's do this thing. You know, I was telling Dad, all right, I'm going to be pro. You and me, let's do this thing and show me how it's done. Um, so, again, oh, wow. and that's just my personality. That doesn't mean that's the right way to do it. doesn't mean it's the wrong way to do it. That's just how I was. Right. Right. Yeah, everybody's wow. different for sure. Right away. For sure. Um, so we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about now you've, you've turned pro, you've made it, uh, at least, you know, started to, to work at it. <clears throat> Can you share with us your experiences going through the grind of trying to make it, starting off playing satellites and challenges, kind of some of the things that you experienced? Well, the, the guys are good. I mean, you go from playing juniors to playing men, and even at the satellite, because that's when I started playing with satellites. They're now called the Futures. Uh, you're playing guys that are out of college that are strong and, and that are quicker than you. You know, they're more emotionally mature than you. So it's a little intimidating at first, and, you know, they think it's, you know, in, in one aspect, they think, oh, it's, you know, it's fun to see the young kids, you know, come up and try and play with us. But in, in the same aspect, they want to, you know, beat me down pretty bad. They don't want to lose to some 16-year-old kid trying to play professional tennis. So it's tough. It's emotionally tough to be sure. And that's why you just have to always keep in mind to, to keep your goals realistic, keep them always achievable. You know, I'm not a big fan of, of having your daily goals being, oh, I'm going to, or, or your weekly goals being, I'm going to get to the semifinals of this turn, get to the finals of this turn. I mean, you can't, at the end of the day, you can't really contr- directly control those goals. It's more along the lines of, you know, I've been working on this. I'm going to try and implement this pattern out on the court. I'm definitely going to be mentally tough. I'm going to run for every ball. And those are, those are the types of things that you can control. Right. No, Absolutely. Um, you, you you mentioned the word um, you mentioned the word emotional. Um, you you turned pro in '98 and retired in 2010. Um, playing professionally for 12 years, you know, obviously minus a bit of time here and there for you know for some in, injury, which it's a big accomplishment as you know. Um, a lot of players are out there and don't get close to 12 years. Um, apart from the the back surgery and recovery, was there a part of your career 
that stands out as the most difficult for you now, looking back? The most difficult, you know, I always had uh, an issue with training. I, you know, I had these, these issues with I would, I would be able to overtrain my body an awful lot and I would get sick. So I'd spend, you know, three hard days training and then I'd end up getting uh, the flu for like two weeks. And it's just the, you know, part of the problem that I had, one of the problems that I had to deal with. And for a while there, I said, okay, well, let's spend less time on court. Let's spend more time off court and really work on, you know, kind of my explosiveness and fitness off the court. Maybe that will bridge the gap. And both of the times that I really dedicated myself off court, I went through nine months of incredibly bad results, losing a lot of first rounds, not doing well, playing pretty poor, executing poor. Um, so those, those two times in my career are pretty tough. Yeah. I bet since, <clears throat> since your signature as a player was the big serve, attacking, finishing at the net, uh, old school, if you will, did you make your development and growth into the program? As, um, was that the, the main focus of the junior two, is the, the serve and volley, attacking the entire time, or were one time just a solid baseline and then you kind of grew into that? Yeah, I, in uh, juniors, I never served volley. I uh, hit the ball really hard, really flat, and played just one, two tennis from the baseline. I'd take everything early on the top of the bounce and more or less overpower my opponents. And then, unfortunately, when I turned pro, I got a rude awakening that hitting hard and flat uh, from the baseline and trying to win every point doesn't work. You know, it's just too low percentage. Sure, I would look good for you. I'd look unbelievable for games, but for sets and for matches, I look just reckless. It would be the best way to describe it. So I basically said to my dad, I said, well, shoot, what are we going to do here? I mean, I can't win baseline points against these guys. I'm not able to hit five and six hard, flat shots in, you know, in the court. That's just not what I've, my game's been built. So then, you know, Stanford was number one at the time, and he says, well, why don't we try and start serving and volleying a bit? And I had some good hands already. It's not like I, I never came to the net. I came to the net a lot, and so I kind of just started developing a serve and volley style. Yes, and I like the serve um, volley, so I was glad to see you do that. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that we, one of the things that we were talking about when we knew you were going to be coming on, was, um, you know, when it came to when it came time for you to have the opportunity to potentially play Davis Cup, um, was there any, I don't know, decision making whether you had a chance to maybe play? Australia with your father being from there, or was it always you were interested in the U.S.? Well, Australia approached me to, to you know, play Davis Cup, and, and, and again, I was very flattered, very humbled that they would, you know, ask me to uh, consider it, but I'm an American. I mean, I, I've spent four years of my life at, you know, very young age in Australia, and all my tennis has been played in the United States, the USTA. Uh, was so good to me. They really helped me a lot. Um, and so I really felt like it would have been poor character to turn around and play uh, Davis Cup for, for right. Australia. That's good. <clears throat> Very good. Uh, you know, Taylor, if you had uh, one win uh, in your 12-year career that truly shaped you, and it was a win that it didn't really make headlines, but personally you knew that that made a big difference in your development as a pro that really used to think back and think, man, that, really, that win really took me to that next level and taught me a lot. Uh, what match would that be? 
No, I played Magnus Norman in Toronto one year. I think I, I qualified, and at the time he was, gosh, I think he was like four in the world at the time. And uh, I ended up beating him in that match. And it was before I'd really done anything special at a, at a high level. And I just felt like, wow, you know, this guy's four in the world, and I felt like I played a, a you know a nice solid match, and it was good enough to beat you know one of the best players in in the world. Um, that's you know I was I was pumped, I was fired up about that. Actually, I'm sorry, it wasn't Toronto, it was uh, Chennai, Chennai, and uh, so that match probably didn't make headlines, but uh, it was definitely a good confidence boost for me. Very good, very good. What, what, uh, just out of curiosity, what, uh, what year was that when it happened? Oh my gosh, I am the worst at these things. The worst. <laughs> Sorry. About it would be, re- it would be relatively close, I would say, to when I, when I turned pro. So it would be in that ninety nine two thousand range. Okay. Okay. So you were just okay. Wow. Yeah, I was just kind of getting started, and uh, you know, again, but. It's not like when I turned pro, I hadn't been playing pro tennis. I'd been playing pro tennis when I was 15 years old, playing, you know, some uh, satellites around, playing, you know, the older guys uh, when they were in town. So it had been, you know, a, a few years that I'm like, geez, I don't know if I'm good enough. I don't know if I'm good enough. And then all of a sudden, boom, I get a couple of big wins. And all of a sudden, you know, the confidence rolls and, and things happen. Absolutely, absolutely um, good to hear. So we're coming up against a break here, Taylor, so we're going to be right back uh, with Taylor Dent in one second. Don't go away. The Dent Academy is a family affair. You know, my dad, my wife, my brother, myself, we're all a part of it. We all grew up in tennis. We all are passionate about tennis. Being on the court with your son is good. We both have a good time with it. We both say things differently but mean the same thing. See the grip, don't change it. Oh, I saw it, I saw it. What makes a great coach is many things, but it ultimately comes down to seeing the game correctly and then being able to communicate that to the player efficiently. Right, so just nice and whippy behind that ball. When you finally get through to a player and you get them on the same page as you are, it's, it's a pretty cool feeling. Oh, oh nice, giddiness, you get giddy. You know, you get excited. It's, it's, it's this competition. This is emotion. It's, it's intensity out there. I mean, you know, that's what passion is all about, right? To celebrate the not normal Mini Cooper, we hired an expert to tell you about Mini telepathically. Greetings. Relax and listen to my mind. The Mini Cooper hardtop comes with 37 MPG and co-cart handling. Wait, that's not telepathy. Listen again. The bigger four-door Mini Countryman has seating for five. Okay, you're just whispering. You're still paying me for this. Come see the 37 MPG Mini Cooper hardtop and the bigger Mini Countryman today. Visit miniusa.com slash info for MPG details. The Adidas Barricade 6 provides superior cushioning, support, and stability. Maximum durability is backed by a six-month guarantee. The choice of ATP professional Andy Murray, the Barricade 6 is the perfect shoe for the competitive player who needs to play at the highest level. The Adidas Barricade 6, the ultimate hardcore shoe. Available at TennisWarehouse.com, the ultimate equipment website. Taking a family of five to the amusement park can cost a small fortune. Oh, yeah. So to save some money, we thought, 
Hey, let's bring the amusement park to us. Yeah. Go ahead. All right. Uh, step right up. Step right up, young man. Are you ready to ride the Wacky Waterfall? That's just the bathtub with the shower head running. Nope, it's the Wacky Waterfall. It's the shower, Dad. Waterfall. Wacky. There's an easier way to save. To get a free rate quote, go to Geico.com. Then buy online, over the phone, or at your local Geico office. Northern Tool and Equipment. My girlfriend has given me a pet name. I'm afraid to ask. Snuggle Muffin. No, it isn't. And she uses it in public. Okay, so give your girlfriend a pet name she'll hate, like uh, Thunder Chunky. I couldn't do that. I see. Too harsh for Snuggle Muffin. Okay. Drown her out with a 200-mile-per-hour cordless leaf blower. Got it. Here she comes. Hey, Snuggle Muffin. What are you doing, Snuggle... Snuggle... So out of here. Wait, come back, Thunder Chunky. There's no problem a little horsepower can't solve. Northern Tool and Equipment. Here we go, and we're back with Taylor Dent and Sandy Middleman joining me. Welcome back, guys. Are you still there? Yep, we're here. Ready to go. Awesome, awesome. So, uh, Taylor, one of the things that uh, you heard on the clip was was your big serve. Um, can you tell the, the, the viewers now that we're back, I mean the viewers, well, listen to that, the listeners now that we're back, um, how did you over time, get that big a serve? Did it take a while? Did you start feeling like, hey, this is going to be my weapon? I, I feel like with any uh, you know, good shot out there, a lot of it is just natural feel and, and natural ability. Um, obviously, I always had a penchant for, for hitting things you know, pretty hard and fast. So you know, those, those two things combined, and I'm a, I'm a big guy. You know, it's not like I'm a small guy like the rest of these tennis players out there weigh 175 pounds. I mean, I'm I'm right. 220, and, and so you, know, you combine all those factors, and, and you know, decent motion, um, you know, appetite to rip the rip the ball pretty fast, and then you know, big, fairly big, strong guy, and you know, you can set some records. Absolutely, hey, Taylor. Just out of just out of curiosity, before we jump into the next question, um, in relation to what Alex asked you about the serve, what was the biggest serve you ever hit? Recorded. Uh, the Biggest serve I ever hit was I don't know 150 at uh, I, I hit that at a few places, um, but y'all you know, I guess 
for me, I mean, I've hit one 174 at, like, some small little radar gun tournament. But, again, those things are, are pretty inaccurate. I mean, I've hit serves at, at smaller tournaments as hard as I can, and they go 90 miles an hour, and I've hit serves that are going 174. So you, you kind of take those with a grain of, with a grain of salt. But sure. at, the, at the slams, I was always pretty close to 150. I never got 150 at the slams, um, you know, some of the smaller wow. tournaments I did. But uh, at the French Open, I hit one 149. Uh, the Wimbledon one's 148, and the U.S. Open was 147. I don't think I ever hit a big one down at uh, Australia. I never stayed around long enough down there. <laughs> okay. All right, cool. Um, well, moving on a little bit, um, when, you, uh, when you retired in 2010, was your, was your retirement, was that decision based, like, more on kind of a physical state and, like, the body setting its time, or was it just, like, I've played 12 years. I've done a lot. I've made a career high at 21. I've had all these accomplishments, and I just kind of you kind of felt like it was your time. Well, it, you know, like anything, it wasn't a straightforward decision. I mean, it was it was pretty tough for me, and it was a a few factors altogether. Basically, one was like you said. I mean, I was out for three years uh, with major back surgery, a few of them, and I was in bed for a year straight. So getting back in shape to play on tour was uh, quite a quite a you know thing to ask. Uh, number two sure. is is my wife and I had had a baby, so I wanted to be dad, you know, kind of first yeah. and foremost. I feel like when you when you commit to having a baby, you're kind of responsible uh, for that for that life, and and you know that was always going to be coming first to me. And then, you know, I found myself, saying, you know, spending less time on court and more, more time with Jenny and the baby, which I think is a good thing. Um, but I, I felt that my plateau was going to be about 70 in the world, you know, just because I wasn't making any progress after I, I got back up there. And then so, you know, Jenny and I started talking about it, and I kind of reflected and said, look, I've had 12 years. I've had some success. Obviously, I wish I would have won, you know, 100 grand slams, you know, like every other player out there. But, uh, I've, you know, I, I had a... I had a decent career. I tried my best, and uh, you know I think it's time you know just to call it. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and as as fans, we we enjoyed watching you, and and uh, obviously the serve and and the serve and volley was was one of the things that that I enjoyed the most. Um, so <laughs> making it to the top of the you know top twenty five in the ATP is is a big achievement. Looking back at your career, now that you know three years removed from retirement, was there one thing that you can remember that it was a big influence on that achievement becoming a reality. I think the biggest influence is always learning things on your own, I, especially for me. I'm a stubborn guy, and it, it takes me seeing things and learning things on my own. I mean, the progression of, of my heroes in tennis was, you know, when I was young, playing juniors, I loved watching Boris Becker, just smacking the ball around the court, making things look easy, boom, boom, boom. And then as I got a little older, I, I appreciated – you know, a little bit more art in the game and, and just dominance, just, just the ability to win. And so Sampras was number one at the time. But then once I realized how tough the tour was, the guy that really opened my eyes was uh, just watching Pat Rafter. I mean, I was, you know, decent friends with Pat Rafter and uh, just got to speak with him a few times. And he really kind of set my emotions straight for the mental and, you know, and, and emotional challenges that come with being a professional tennis player. And I'm sure it comes with being any professional athlete, but I feel tennis is unique in a lot of ways. And I, I felt like just even watching him play really just showed, geez, 
you know, you got to lay it out there every day to give yourself uh, the best chance possible. Right, right. Well, you definitely had a great career. Like I said, we really enjoyed watching you, and sad to see you go. But now you're taking that that experience and and transferring it to to younger players, up and coming players. So, um, what players on tour have caught your eye recently uh, that have the potential to accomplish great things do you, that you've seen out there? Um. You know, the tennis is just getting a little older, isn't it? I mean, there's there's so many guys that are dominating that are, you know, starting to get in their late 20s. But for the young guys, I mean, I'm impressed with Kay Nishikori. He's been playing awesome. I've known Kay since he was uh, since pretty young down in Boletari's. Same as Ryan Harrison and, and, and Jack Sock. Um, it's nice to see a guy like Dimitrov kind of get over the hump these last couple of years. He, I mean, he's been around since I was still on tour. And, uh, you know, there was so much hype about him. And, and, you know, a lot of times what happens, those things fizzle out. But uh, Dimitrov seemed to, you know, just kind of persevere and get through. And now he's playing some some incredible tennis. But, you know, tennis is so tough these days that for someone to break through, they're not going to be a secret. It's not going to be a surprise. They're going to put some good results up pretty much, you know, fairly commonly, like Vavrinka winning the Australian Open. I mean, he started to really knock on the door almost for, you know, nine months there. So it really wasn't a surprise that he was going to be in the hunt sooner or later if he kept that, that level up and that emotional toughness up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, Taylor, uh, going uh, going back a little bit uh, in the conversation to the subject of uh, when you retired in 2010, Obviously now we're you know we're in the beginning of 2014. A lot's happened. You know you're married uh, to Jenny. You've got two kids as you mentioned uh, right before we uh, before we came on the air. Uh, Jenny is a, a former top 50 WTA player. Um, you know you're a father. You started the Dent Tennis Academy. How does it feel now to focus on helping others try to reach their respective and their respective and take you know take the focus and spotlight off of yourself? It's it's funny. It's interesting. It's like anything else. It has its challenges. Uh, you know, life on tour is all about being selfish. You know, you wake up in the morning, you go eat breakfast based upon what your day is going to look like. Every little minute in that day is how can you be a better tennis player. So it's an incredibly selfish existence. And and now my life is okay. How do we make this player better? That player better? And it, you know, in the beginning, it took uh, a little bit of time to make that adjustment. But, you know, now it's fun and, you know, I live through these kids' results, you know, good and bad. You know, I, I get upset with sure. them. I get excited with them. So <laughs> it's definitely a transition. It's definitely a change. Um, but it's fun. Nice. Nice. Now, I know you've done some, some TV commentating. Is that something you would do a little bit more of if you had the opportunity to point forward? Um, I, you know, I enjoy it, and I think I enjoy it because I do it, you know, pretty much the once a year at the U.S. Open. Um, you know, tennis, I love tennis, you know, so don't take this next comment wrong. I think tennis is being played right now at the highest level it's ever been played at. That's just my personal opinion. You know, having said that, though, you know, you, you see one match, you've seen a lot of them. You know, there's not that many styles that are kind of dissimilar out there. Everybody's got a, you know, pretty big serve. They've got a big forehand. You know, you, you work the point and try to control the center of the court. And, and so it's, it's pretty similar all around. So for me, uh, commentating on, on, you know, that 
isn't as rewarding as, say, working with kids and trying to, you know, walk them through the process of hopefully attaining those levels. Right. Absolutely. Um, you know, Taylor, as you know, as we as we go through sort of your post uh, your post career, um, this is a, a question that you know, we're we're curious to to get the answer to because I think a lot of um, a lot of pro athletes when they're done with their career get asked this. So forgive me if you've been asked this many times, <laughs> but um, looking back at your career, what's your proudest moment and who was your biggest influence and why? Biggest influence has got to be my father. There's no doubt about it. I mean, he taught me how to be tough on the court. He taught me my game. He taught me, you know, how to, how to think out there, how to play, how to, how to be a gamer out on the court, uh, not just a hitter of the ball. So no question my father is the biggest influence in my tennis, although I, I do have many others. There's no doubt about it. Elliot Telcher is, is up there as well, as, as, as well as some other former players. Like Agassi helped me at, at times. You know, Sampras practiced with me an awful lot, but uh, my father is definitely, definitely the biggest. Uh, my most memorable time, you know, I hate giving this answer because it's probably an obvious one, but it really is. I mean, winning your first title, on the ATP tour, just kind of, I feel like it solidifies your position out there, like you belong. Until you win that first title, I don't know if, it, if it's known outside of the tennis, but I don't know. There's like a stigma like, yeah, you know, you're doing well, but you, you, you might not belong. And after I won that title in Newport, I felt like, okay, you know, I really do belong here. Right. Now, with that said, I want to see, I'm going to play a little bit for you and see if, uh, if this is not one of your 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 bigger um, winning moments, take a listen. Yeah! Hey, buddy, ready to go? Coming. The right genes make all the difference. Uh, that's pretty funny. That's awesome. Uh, no, that was a clip from that uh, the Genworth ad. So, so the story behind that was. I got hurt in Munich playing on the clay, and so I couldn't go to play Roland Garros. And they're shooting this clip or this commercial over the Roland Garros thing, and all professional players are, are getting ready to play the French. So uh, anyway, my, my ankle was healing, my shin was healing, and um, they end up just calling around, and it just kind of fell into place to where I was literally the only kind of professional player in the vicinity. I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. I'm, I, I should be over in Paris right now, so I may as well, you know, have some fun, try and make it commercial. <laughs> <That's> cool. <laughs> Is that because of, of your relationship with Agassi that he, he knew you were around, or how did they get a hold of you? Uh, just through IMG, actually. That, you, know, okay. that, uh, you know, I was, I was, I played a, a little bit with, you know, my career with IMG, and, you know, that's one of the benefits of having an agent. They do all that work for you, right, Sandy? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> That's right. There you go. There you go. So now, uh, Terry, you're, you're, you're running an academy. Um, is there a lot that you bring to the kids that they can actually appreciate from your career that you're trying to teach them? And I know a lot of coaches out there get little feedback like, hey, you know, uh, I don't want to work that hard or do I really have to. How do your kids really take your influence as a player that you bring to the court to them every day? Uh, I guess they're familiar with my personality now, and, and my dad's personality is we love to have a good time out on the tennis court. So there's no question. We, we want everybody to have fun because I think that's a huge part of it. If, if you hate it out there, 
then you're going to want to practice less and your intensity is going to be down. Having said that, uh, we do work hard. There, I mean, and that's one of the things that we maybe have a stigma and we scare some uh, other local kids off a little bit is when we're out there, you know, we expect some intensity, we expect some hard work, and that's going to be the only time that we don't get along with uh, a student, a player, is when they're slacking off and, and not putting in a good effort because it's, honestly, it's disrespectful to themselves, to, to me and my father, and to their parents, everybody concerned. Nobody wins. Um, so that's, that's kind of the thing that the kids have had, you know, had to get used to is, is my father and I and Jenny, we have a professional work ethic, and, and we expect nothing less from the kids. Um, you know, but as far as, like, the coaching in and out, uh, you know, about what, what to do with the game, it, it's funny. You know, I wish I was the dictator, and I said, you know, you do it this way, and that's it. But uh, I feel like my role is more like a lawyer. I, I kind of have to present my case and, and make it as airtight as possible and, and just really give them no alternative other than kind of the way I feel like it has to be done with modern tennis. And, you know, it, it's, it's a lot of discussion. Right. Uh, Taylor, did your, did your style as a player in any way, does it influence how you approach your vision and role as a coach of the academy or no? Uh, and it's a fun, it's, I guess that's fine. It's tough for me to answer. I'd say yes in the fact that I knew what it felt like to play serving and volleying tennis in a modern era against modern rackets, right. modern tennis players, modern strings, and, and modern you know, speeds of surface. And it was not fun. You know, I, I didn't like it at all. I, it was just, it was really hard. I had to execute so well to uh, keep matches competitive. So I, you know, we, we teach kids to basically play more of a modern style. I mean, you know, obviously the serve is still a big part of it. We do lots of serves and we try and make sure all of our kids are serving well. But after that, you know, serving and volleying, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not a no-no, but we, we certainly rather see the kids ripping short forehands angling it off somewhere and, and then coming in and, and knocking off a volley. So we don't encourage them to play the way I play. We encourage them to play the way the most successful players, you know, are playing right now. Right. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. You know, Taylor, now as you, you've seen this this past year, maybe late last year, beginning of this year, a lot of players are, are turning to retired players for their coaching. Uh, would you consider coaching on the ATP or WTA tour if, if that opportunity came about? I think so. I'm 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 pretty open for anything. You know, I, I like to hear possibilities. Um, I'd be open to it. I think I wasn't open to it a few years ago, just because you know I was I was just off the tour, and I would say, you know what, if I'm going to travel this many weeks, I would just you know just go play. Obviously, it would have to kind of be the Goldilocks scenario because, again, my first priority is making sure that I'm home and spending as much time with my kids and, and my wife as possible. But if there was something to be worked out where the, the weeks would be smaller, I'd definitely be open to it. I think, I think, Sandy, are you looking for a coach? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Always looking for help like Taylor, for sure. Always looking for a little help. Uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Taylor, as we've, as we've uh, sort of brushed over your your, your post-professional uh, career role with the Academy, the Gen Tennis Academy, and you know your vision of coaching and how you work with the players, um, it, and this is kind of like a loaded question. I uh, would pose this uh, not too long ago to Johan Creek, so don't feel pressure. But 
if you could give tennis parents out there and kids alike one tip for their respective journeys, what would it be and why? Okay, I'm not going to give the the obvious one, which is persevere. I think that should be pretty much a foregone conclusion, like you know, being fit for te- for to be successful on tour. I mean, if you're not fit, you're not going to be successful on the tour. Okay, so let's just move on beyond that because that's a big one. I would say, watch the watch the pros, watch the pros because they are doing it the most efficient way, the most effective way possible. Um, watch Djokovic on, on the men's side and, and Vavrinka now and Murray. and They're doing a lot of things right to have the amount of success that they're having. On the, on the women's side, the same thing. Watch all the successful girls. Watch, watch Serena Williams. Watch uh, Azarenka. See what they do. Watch Sharapova. Um, you know, and, and here's the other thing I'd say is if you're going to a coach and what they're saying is contradicting what you are seeing on TV – well, somebody's got it wrong. Either the coach has got it wrong or Djokovic has got it wrong. And I'm not going to go against Djokovic too often when it comes to tennis. Sure. sure. Right. Sure. No, that's what that Right. <laughs> you know, one of the things, and I'm sure you noticed, Taylor, I don't know if you weren't into it too much, <clears throat> uh, given what you accomplished on tour as far as parents go, but uh, those of us that didn't have the success you had as, as players and are not coaches at a high level, uh, you get parents that either question what you're doing or, and I usually tell them, you know what, would you go to the doctor and say, hey, I'm, it hurts here, I need this kind of medicine, or would you go to the doctor and say, what do I need, please help me, and follow the advice. Do you get a lot of a lot of pushback from parents or a little pushback saying, you know what, we need to uh, take a look at this, or do they pretty much follow your advice? You get a mixture of both. You get a mixture of parents that just say, I'm never going to know as much as you are, so I trust you. Um, you know, and, and so on down that path. And then you get the parents that second-guess everything. And honestly, I feel like, look, if we're trying to raise a player, and Sandy, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a team effort. And the parents are a huge part of that team, especially if they're in, involved on a day-to-day basis. So I feel like if you try to be the role of the dictator in that scenario and you just push the parents to the side, you're asking for trouble down the road. You have to involve the parents. You have to get them on the same page. And, hey, guess what? If they point out something and the coach is wrong, the coach is wrong. I mean, that, that's just the right. way it is. But, really, when you're, sure. when you're coaching a player, it, at the end of the day, I mean, they have more invested in that player than, than a coach does, the parents and, and the player themselves. So I would hope that they're interested. I would hope that they are – nervous is, is the bad word, but anxious and, and just making sure they're being careful. Um, but also I would hope that they – would uh, follow logic and follow reason. If I'm giving good examples of why we're telling uh, little Sally to hit her forehand this way, and I'm showing video of, you know, as a Ranka and, and, and so on and so forth, then I don't want to hear about the forehand, you know, a month down the road. Oh, wait, why are we, why are we doing this? Does that make sense? I, I want to feel like, okay, we've passed that. We're on the same page. If you've got a question about something else, let's deal with that. I don't want to kind of keep spinning our wheels on the same thing that we've already been over. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, wanted to ask you one uh, one last question before uh, we before we wrap up and let you go from there because you've been really generous, obviously, with your time just uh, finishing up the day. Um, I'm going to kind of throw a curveball at you, and if it's okay, I'm going to ask an interesting question regarding coaching the academy, but bring in the female side of the of the sport a little bit. And one of the things I wanted to ask was. 
when you get on the court, because if I'm correct, correct me if I'm wrong, does Jenny also, your wife, does she do any teaching as well? I think she does, right, a little bit? Yeah, she does a little bit, yeah. So when you guys are out there working, does it, does it very helpful and sort of a unique dynamic at the Dent Tennis Academy to not only, you know, have your dad, but have you who was 21 in the world, and Jenny, I believe, was at a career high of like somewhere around 50 or 52 or something like that, right? Something yes, close to that. So does that kind of give you guys, you know, sort of this edge you'd feel with um, bringing students in and then obviously, you know, some retaining of those students because that's a, that's a pretty unique dynamic that not too many places can bring, right? Have the husband and wife combination that has such, you know, great careers. Yeah, well, I mean, honestly, I feel like that's our strongest selling point. It, you know, you go to a lot of places, uh, academies, I should say, and the, the people who actually have high-level experience don't work with you, you know, or they cost an exorbitant amount of money to work with you. Or you go to places, uh, academies, where you've just got good players there, and, and really the coaching is, is pretty, you know, it's pretty poor. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of what we pride ourselves on is we actually know what we're talking about. We, we improve these kids fast. And the best thing about having three of us there, you know, uh, you know, we talk about tennis a lot. We've lived tennis a lot. So we see the game pretty much exactly the same. And, and the best thing is sure. we have three very different ways of teaching it. You know, I, I, I would go about saying something a lot differently than my father would, a lot differently than Jenny would. So if I'm struggling to make a connection with a player, I have no, I have no ego. I mean, my, my ego is I want this guy to get better, this girl to get better. So if my dad can get through or Jenny can get through to this player better than I can, more effectively than I can, then that's what happens. So I think that's the edge we have. Oh, that's great. Nice. It's interesting. Definitely, definitely an advantage for for academy players, for sure. And, and Taylor, I just want to uh, thank you so much for, for joining us tonight. Uh, that after a long day on the courts, I'm, of course, having fun on the courts, so you took the time out to, to join us and, and give the, the listeners a perspective on your career and what you're doing. And uh, we want to encourage people to check out the Dent Tennis Academy. I'm assuming you guys have a summer camp this summer coming up. Yeah, always, always the summer camp, always tennis. Always, always. Nice. It's just uh, DentTennisAcademy.com, and uh, you can catch Taylor there. I'm sure you'd love to see her on the course this summer, catch him out there. Taylor, thanks again for joining us, and uh, we'll be right back. Go ahead. Thanks so much, Sandy. Thanks, Alex. You are yeah, very welcome. You're thanks, very welcome. Appreciate it. We'll catch everybody back in a few minutes. Don't go anywhere. Taking a family of five to the amusement park can cost a small fortune. Oh, yeah. So to save some money, we thought, hey, let's bring the amusement park to us. Yeah. Go ahead. All right. Uh, step right up. Step right up, young man. Are you ready to ride the Wacky Waterfall? That's just the bathtub with the shower head running. Nope. It's the Wacky Waterfall. It's the shower, Dad. Waterfall. Wacky. There's an easier way to save. To get a free rate quote, go to Geico.com. Then buy online, over the phone, or at your local Geico office. The Den Academy is a family affair. You know, my dad, my wife, my brother, myself, we're all a part of it. We all grew up in tennis. We all are passionate about tennis. Being on the court with your son is good. We both have a good time with it. We both say things differently but mean the same thing. Let's see the grip. Don't change it. Oh, I saw it. I saw it. 
What makes a great coach is many things, but it ultimately comes down to seeing the game correctly and then being able to communicate that to the player efficiently. Right? So just nice and whippy behind that ball. When you finally get through to a player and you get them on the same page as you are, it's, it's a pretty cool feeling. Oh! Oh, nice! Giddiness! You get giddy! You know, you get excited. It's this competition. This is emotion. It's, it's intensity out there. I mean, you know, that's what passion is all about, right? We're here asking people from all over what they think of lifting green tea. Let's hear what people from Texas have to say. Mm-mm. How about China? Mm. Germany? Mm. How about people from the North Pole? Mm. Or Mars? It, what about mimes? Oh, right. People with their jaws wired shut? Oh. Yeah, a barbershop quartet. Mm. Oh, you guys are great. How about race car drivers? Mm. Yeah, what about you, high school glee club, here on a field trip? That settles it. It sounds like everyone loves the taste of Lipton green tea. With its protective antioxidants from real tea, it's not just good for you, it's mmm to you. Lipton tea can do that. Little Caesars, home of the $5 hot and ready pepperoni pizza, now has a deep, deep dish pizza with eight crispy caramelized corner slices and even more cheese and pepperoni. So head on down and grab a large for just eight bucks and tell them Alan Varner sent you. They won't know who that is, but as a voice actor, I'm always trying to get my name out there. Check me out at alandoesvoices.com. That's A-L-A-N doesvoices.com. But first, get the new deep, deep dish pizza. It's hot and ready every day from 4 to 8 p.m. for just 8 bucks, only at Little Caesars. Pizza, pizza. And participating locations plus tax. back. Welcome back to the Players Lounge. Presented today by Protein International. Alongside with me is uh, Sandy Middleman. And joining us now is Pete Zebron. Pete, can you hear us okay? I am on, Alex. Uh, very well done, uh, you and Sandy, and uh, having Taylor Dent on the first two segments. Very enlightening uh, across the board from his time uh, on the Future Satellite Tour to uh, on tour and on to uh, retirement and hosting his academy with his with his father and his wife. Very exciting. Yeah, that was great. It was nice to have him join us, and we definitely got an inside look at what, what was going on in his life back then and how what he went through and now what he's doing. So it was great. So now it's time to definitely switch gears. We had the Fed Cup this weekend, so I'm going to hand it off to the, to the experts of uh, the tour here. And, uh, uh, Pete, why don't you get us started with some Fed Cup and throw some some questions over at Sandy and see what we can do. Very good, Alex. Yes, uh, Sandy, you had uh, your head, you had your eye on the uh, Italy at uh, the United States tie in Cleveland, Ohio this weekend. 
share share with us a little bit about your observations about that tie, please. Yeah, um, well, I think there was, uh, uh, as we spoke about in our uh, in our previous uh, couple of shows, there was some uh, some you know, sort of uh, you know hang-ups uh, in the in the press about the fact that both the U.S. and Italy were uh, sending their B teams, as they like to call, you know, the, the, their, their sort of second-level uh, teams. Uh, the U.S. had um, Madison Keys, they had Christina McHale, um, Lauren Davis uh, was a part of the team, and, and uh, uh, help me out, who am I missing here? Uh, brain is... Allison uh, <laughs> Risky. Allison Risky, exactly. Exactly. Um, so, you know, with the U.S. Uh, compiled that team with Mary Jo Fernandez as the captain, uh, they were up against the Italians who, you know, ever, they've been known to be pretty dominant in Fed Cup the last, uh, you know, last few years um, with the sort of their stable players being uh, Schiavone, Panetta, uh, Vinci, and Arani. And um, this time around, they they had uh, those players chose either you know they chose not to uh, not to participate. So um, you know Italy went with uh, Karen Knapp, who's about I think her ranking is about 40 or so. Um, Camilla Giorgi, whose ranking is about uh, in the mid 80s, and then they had uh, two players that played the doubles. One was about. Um, uh, in the mid 100s, and the other one I've never actually heard of. That's the first time I've ever seen her. Uh, was about 750 or so. Um, so it was kind of an interesting match. Um, the the thing that the the thing that stood out to me, Pete. I don't know how you saw it. Was what what, what you were able to to check out in your time. But um, the thing that stood out to me was that. You know, it started out with uh, you know with Mikhail and. Um, Mikhail and Knapp, and, you know, I think Christine is just, uh, for me, she's, and you and I touched on this on, a, on, a, on another phone call, she's a, she's, she's a steady player, she's a solid player, and occasionally the forehand can do some damage, but I kind of felt like there just wasn't, there wasn't enough heat there, um, and, you know, Knapp's good enough, and although maybe her movement is a bit in question occasionally, she just didn't, um, yeah, I never felt like, even though it was a three-setter, I never felt like Kanaf was really, you know, really, you know, in question. Um, that was kind of my view. And so, obviously, with uh, Karen getting off to the win in three sets against Mikhail, you know, it sort of put that, uh, you know, sort of put that pressure on Keys. And I think that um, when Keys and Georgie played, you know, it wasn't a secret that, um you know, it's going to be pretty aggressive uh, based upon what we know about both players. Keys brings the big game, big serve, you know, bang, bang, tennis in her way. And then we, you know, most of most of the players and, you know, people all around the tour know what Camille is known for, which is, you know, the quick legs, taking it early. And, she, you know, she plays, you know, she plays, you know, rip at tennis. So um, when she's on, she can be pretty complicated for anybody. And I felt that the... One of the things that was difficult for Madison, to be honest with you, was simply the fact that she was playing a style which has less margin of error that was maybe required at that moment being down 1-0. Um, so what are your thoughts on that as far as just the actual lineup, putting her second? Well, sure. Well, Ma- Madison Key's uh, obviously a good choice there. But, uh, you know, this was played in Cleveland, and Allison Risk is from Pittsburgh, uh, very close to Cleveland, Ohio. I uh, 
I probably would have, as uh, as we had talked about before, gone with Allison rather than uh, Mikhail in this in this tie. Uh, she actually has the higher ranking, has has put together some really good results, and uh, <laughs> just for kicks, since the U.S. hosted this, uh, you know, Allison Risk is a very accomplished grass court player. I'm beginning to think, wow, maybe they could have and should have played this tie on grass somewhere in the west uh, west coast. Uh, if they're going to play uh, Italy, which has a lot of clay quarters, um, Camilla Georgie uh, accepted, of course, but it uh, would have been right. interesting to play this on grass and let Risk, uh, Risk and Madison Keys with their big hitting um, take on the Italians on grass. But, um, yeah, difficult. Uh, in fact, the U.S. goes on now. They're going to host France in the, uh, in the world group uh, tie in April next, but uh, I want to share something else with you. You know, Italy will, will go on to play the Czech Republic in the Czech Republic in the next round in the semifinals, but sort of an interesting twist in the uh, bottom half of the world group uh, at this point, Sandy, and that is uh, Germany uh, on the road beat Slovakia. A very good result. Uh, Kerber won a couple of matches there, uh, uh, as did Petkovic, uh, and they beat the Slovaks uh, on the road. But here's here's the interesting twist. Australia beat Russia, a very decimated um, Russian squad. I think I think the only recognizable player on that squad was uh, was Coach Anastasia Mosquina. But um, Australia is actually going to be hosting that. Yeah, Australia is going to be hosting that tie in April. And uh, the problem is is that all of the players are going to be in in Europe during that time. And there is actually talk that uh, Australia is going to host that tie somewhere in Europe. Uh, uh, against Germany of all uh, of all nations, what what's your thought on on that possibility? Yeah, I, I was hearing quite a bit of that mentioned by Renee Stubbs um, on Sunday as I was uh, as I was uh, tuning in um, uh, during the coverage in, of uh, U.S. and Italy, and yeah, they were mentioning that uh, that may be a possibility. They were talking about sort of you know the the travel requirements and how, you know, complicated logistically that might be. Um, so that would be definitely a kind of a twist. Um, well, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm not, you know, you know, not all honesty. I mean, I, I think that it, everything in Fed Cup kind of, you know, it, as does like, you know, Davis Cup, I think everything happens pretty quickly. Um, you know, and, and it's hard to sometimes gauge what what's going to work. Uh, like whether it be, you know, where, uh, what surface, you know, and, and a lot of times, you know, we as, you know, sort of, um, you know, the the tennis aficionados or the people that are like live in the sport, you know, we, you know, some a, a team will choose a surface or maybe even in this case, maybe choose, a you know, choose a site and a surface and we sit back and say, well, why, you know, hmm, why did they, you know, why did they choose that or, you know, what was the reason behind that? And I, I'm not really sure. I mean, look, I, I guess at the end of the day, um, logis- logistics are only something to worry about once you've won, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Because at the end true, of the day, true. The, the idea the idea is simply to move on, right? That That's your goal every weekend when you play Fed Cup is let's win and then let's worry about the logistics, what can and can't happen or what's difficult, or, you know what I mean, like later because, true. Um, yeah, so... I don't know. It, it, there'll be some interesting matchups for sure, and um, um, you know, I I think that first of all, one thing about the U.S. is that you mentioned, you touched on, is they're going to be playing France, 
And you know they they've got to win that match. Otherwise, they're, they're not they're not able to win the Fed Cup for two years. So, um, yeah, that that's an interesting dynamic involved as well. So it'll be interesting to see who they play, because well, let's put it this way: if they don't win the match against France, then it's unlikely for two years that they're going to get Serena or Venus. True. Yeah, True. that'd be my guess. Yeah, I don't know how you would see that, but. You know, yeah, that that's that's a big challenge for Mary Jo. She's got to go into the saleswoman mode uh, to see what she can uh, get <laughs> yeah. for that uh, tie. For, fortunately for her and the USA squad, it will be uh, played somewhere in the U.S. But um, we're coming up to nearly the end of the show, Sandy. And really Absolutely. quickly, wanted to get your picks. Wanted to get your picks. Uh, Italy at the Czech Republic, as well as Germany uh, playing Australia somewhere in the world. Um, well, with Italy and the Czech Republic, uh, I'm going to, for me, it would be, I'm going to call, I'm going to call Czech Republic on that one. Um, you know, obviously at this moment, don't know which teams are showing up. So it's, you know, it's just all, I'm just picking a country at this point versus knowing like who's actually going to be playing and what the matchups and the surface and all that will be. Um, and, uh, with the other, um, I would say I would say Germany. How about you? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm I'm also going to go with the Czechs. In fact, they advanced over Spain. Uh, Kvitova did not play, and they were still able to get through, uh, winning three-two uh, against the Spanish squad. Uh, I do see uh, the Czechs uh, winning that uh, again. Like you said, we're not sure who's going to show up, uh, but it is going to be played in the Czech Republic, and then. Yes, I'm, I'm going to go with Germany as well. They they have the horses with um, with Kerber, with with Petkovic. Lasicki wasn't even on that roster uh, right. for that tie, and so uh, they really have a, a very formidable team. And um, I'd be looking for a Czech Republic and Germany Fed Cup final come November. And uh, with that, uh, would like to say thank you to everyone tuning in on behalf of Sandy Middleman and. Alex Ramirez, this is Pete Zebron for the Pro 10 Radio Network. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate it. Great show again, and um, looking forward. Oh, <laughs> folks.